Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is Dan Blewett, and this is episode 24. Man, we're getting up there. So today we're going to cover part one of my guide to preventing arm injuries in pitchers. And today we're going to go through five of these bullet points that I have laid out. We're going to go over the next five in the next week's episode. But today we're going to kind of cover my story and some of the things that happened to me along my journey and what I've learned, uh, what people do wrong which honestly to me is a misnomer, which we'll, we'll discuss, uh, strength conditioning programs, arm care routines, and pitching mechanics. So those five are what we're going to cover today. So we'll kind of start with my, my backstory. So my first injury was to my elbow. I had a partial UCL tear when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, that happened pretty early in the season in my varsity, uh, my, my varsity season as a sophomore. And at the moment, I thought my life was over. I didn't know what was going on. My elbow hurt a ton. And I cried and whimpered about it and got some got some therapy and I guess it was okay. But for the rest of my high school career, I had some throbbing arm pain in my sort of like between my bicep and tricep area. And I could barely throw more than three or four innings. And when I did, I could barely lift my arm up for the rest of the rest of the game and the rest of the day. It was it was a really strange, enigmatic injury that plagued me for the rest of my high school career. So I was never a good high school pitcher. And it was in part because I just had that that chronic pain in my in my bicep area so I didn't know what that was I still don't it came back and forth throughout my career where it popped back up um, some point in college and then it went away and then it came back again then it went away it popped up my first year in pro ball and I was absolutely miserable pitching through my first season I had it the entire year my first uh, year with the normal corn belters and then it came back the following season and then it finally abated uh, in year three, and then it didn't come back after my, my second Tommy John surgery. So I don't know what that was. In hindsight, based on the symptoms, it kind of seems like bicep tendonitis, but I really don't know. So that was one of those sort of recurring chronic things that I had to deal with throughout my career. But my next big injury was as a college junior. I had a partial tear in my UCL, and then uh, I, again, did not need surgery. I got a uh, just taking care of via rehab. And then I fully tore it as a senior. That was my uh, my redshirt junior year. So my third year and fourth year, I fell in uh, elbow injuries. And then finally, I popped it in my senior year. So I missed my fifth year in college. That was that for me with college. And then uh, I made my, my comeback into independent ball two years later. So And then finally, in, after 2012, I popped my elbow again and had a second Tommy John surgery. And then finally, after that, came back, had three more good seasons. And then after my age 30 season with the Long Island Ducks, I had a ton of shoulder pain and my arm is still in pain to this day. So that was kind of what derailed me my last season, forced me into retirement, pretty severe bicep tendonitis that became tendinosis. And just to the point where my, basically what I was told by the doctors that my bicep tendon is so thickened and irritated that it's never going to go back to normal. And that I probably need surgery to, to repair it if I want to. So for right now, I don't have much pain. I just kind of live with it here and there. Uh, I can still play catch with my lessons and do all that stuff. But if I throw above 65 miles an hour, my shoulder starts to hurt again. So that's kind of been the scope of my career. Now, the question that I, and I got asked this recently via email, um, a young man who had Tommy John a couple of months ago was asking me a bunch of different questions now that he's doing his rehab. And one of them was, what did you do wrong in your first surgery? So this is kind of a, it's an irksome question, not from him, but for example, this past year, a friend of mine who we're not speaking anymore, really, we were just kind of bantering back and forth. And 
I told him about my shoulder because he was asking and, you know, this was just after I decided that I was going to retire. And he's like, well, why don't you just fix your mechanics? Like, you should just fix your mechanics and you wouldn't be in this mess. And it seems like at some times that's the attitude people have towards injuries where it was something that you missed in your planning or in your routine and that you should have seen it coming um, and that you should have taken care of it prior. And if you just fixed it, then you would never have gotten hurt. And that, that attitude towards injuries is way off base and no one has the, um, what's the word here? I love omniscience, but uh, it's just not going to be realistic to assume that any injury we have is because of an error in our routine. I mean, that's just, to be honest, a little bit absurd. And prescience is the word I was thinking about. Prescience is having the knowledge of future events. And so it was it was irritating to me because throughout my career and throughout my injuries, I've always done what the doctors told me. I've always done my own education to try to learn more and to try to figure out things. So I say, okay, well, what is going on? Why am I continuing to have injury problems? What could I maybe do? What are there any free thinkers out there who might have a solution? Like, what do they say? What should I, you know, I've considered pretty much everything throughout my career and I've always made changes after each injury. I've never just waited to heal on the couch and just gone back out there being the same guy that I was. I was always a new pitcher returning to the mound. And I think that's, that's necessary for any athlete of any sport. When you, you know, you get injured, you have to build yourself back up better with, and you know, and it might just mean if you just, you tear something or you, you know, you, you break a bone, it might just mean that you just bolster that area. You just focus more on strengthening the areas around it. You might not make a mechanical change or a movement change, but you know, sometimes you do. But anyway, so there's this, this idea that I think lingers in people that if you do everything right, you'll never get injured. And that's just completely wrong. And another example I have is we had a a high level volleyball player uh, at Warburg Academy who as a sophomore in high school, she uh, was six foot. She was jumping about 10 foot. She was an animal in the gym. She was stronger than every one of her peers, her age and her size, Uh, really just resolute, a hardworking kid. And just in a pedestrian volleyball match, jumped up, spiked a ball, landed awkwardly, and her leg crumpled inward and she tore ACL and I think another ligament as well. And, you know, just talking with different people about it, you know, every once in a while I get some, whether it's a PT or just some, I don't know, just some random ignorant person, they'd be like, oh man, she was probably, you know, she, she should have strengthened her quads. She should have strengthened this. Like her legs are too weak. That's why that happened. It's like, no, actually I watched the video she landed on the inside of her foot and rolled inward. That was why she tore it. It wasn't because she was weaker. She was stronger than all of her peers. And if anyone was going to avoid an injury, it was going to be her because she had stronger legs than everyone else in that volleyball court. So to say that she was weak and that she almost was responsible for this, if she had done this and that and the other thing prior, that she would have been healthy, that she would have survived that fall is false. You know, and, and I think these people miss the point where they think, what about NFL players? They're some of the strongest people in the world, Olympic lifters. I mean, Willis McGahee, he was an animal and he tore his ACL on the field. It was horrific. And you're saying that he was too weak to prevent his knee? Like, anyway, so, I mean, you probably get my point. The point is that, sure, there's always something that we can do to, once an injury's happened, to hopefully bolster it and prevent that same injury from recurring. But our body doesn't necessarily always give us a lot of warning especially with a, an acute injury like that, like a fall or just an awkward step, um, where at that point we think, oh, maybe I could have done a little more of this or I could have done a little more of that. But at the same time, maybe you would have and maybe it still wouldn't have mattered. So it's really, there's no way to tell um, any of that. And 
when you've played long enough in sports, you know, I played with everyone on the continuum of work ethic and of nutritional habits and of lifestyle habits and all that stuff. I've dated, or not dated, I've, uh, I've played with, you know, fat guys who just drink beer, never take care of their arms, never work out, never have an injury. So are you saying like, that's the way to go? Like they did everything right. And that's why, and they weren't injured because if you're saying that, you know, if you do everything right, you're not injured, then there would always be a scale where the hardest working people were the least injured people. And that's just simply not the case. So the point isn't to, isn't to defend my own injuries. It's just sort of to dispel the myth that if you have a son or a daughter out there, she can do everything or he can do everything that can to prevent injuries. And it still might happen. And they could do everything right, quote unquote, in the book, and it could still happen. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, with all this repetitive wear and tear, just the demands of sports, all the strength and conditioning, just the, there's a lot of stress that goes through the body. And on any given pitch, you're putting more force through your UCL in baseball that your UCL can, can stand. And so all the supporting muscles, they help attenuate that stress. They help keep it intact, but you're always stressing that ligament potentially to its, li- to its limit. So... Really, it's uh, almost a miracle when we're not injured. But with a lot of these sports, you know, powerlifting, they say it about it. They say it about baseball. They say it about football, about most of these sports that they're 100% injury risk. Like if you play long enough, you will be injured. It's not to say that you'll be catastrophic, but you will get injured. And then hopefully if you do things right, you just limit some. So, you know, for me, you can look at it two ways like, oh, what did Dan do wrong or Dan should have done this. But I played till I was 31 years old. My last season was when I was 30 and I decided to hang him up in, in January of my, my 31 year. But I got pretty far despite being in shambles most of the time. And that was because I did things well and I got to continue to add on to my body and throw harder um, and yet stay uninjured for long periods of time. So if you look at my sort of t- statistics from college, I threw 150 innings over five years. So that was because I was, I had mono my sophomore year. I had an elbow injury my third year, elbow injury my fourth year. Wasn't that good as a freshman, didn't pitch my fifth year. So five years, 150 innings, that's not a lot of innings. You know, good starting pitchers in college will throw above 75, you know, 75 to 100 innings every season if they're good. So you know, I threw 150 innings over five years and my velocity during that period ranged between 80 and 92. So my first season, I was mostly low 80s. My second and third season, I was mostly upper 80s, like mid to upper 80s. And then my, my best season at the end, I was uh, upper 80s into low 90s. So the vast majority of those innings were spent in probably the mid 80s and like the 86 to 88 range. And then when you fast forward, so after that, that elbow injury there, my first year and my first two years in pro ball combined, I threw 210 innings, so uh, 35% more than I did in the previous five years. I did it in two years, and every single one of those pitches was between 89 and 94. So if you just look at the workload, I threw, again, 35% more innings, and every single inning was at a higher velocity than all the innings prior to that. And for those two seasons, I was healthy. I mean, I wasn't feeling good but I wasn't injured. So I was good. I was feeling good enough to, to, to take them out. So if you look at those workloads, you say, wow, you know, what did you do to allow your body to be more stressed than ever and not get injured in those couple of years? Sure. I did get injured after that, you know, so we move on. But at the same time, as you kind of climb the ladder and you get stronger and you throw harder, you're putting more stress through your body. And then if you're good, you get the opportunity to do it for more innings and more pitches. And you're just setting yourself up to put more stress through your body, right? So if you look at things like I did wrong, I think I did okay considering how much 
I continue to add on, how much stress I continue to add to my arm, um, and how many, how much my innings loads grew over years. And obviously, in in pro ball, when you're if you're a good starting pitcher in the minor leagues, you went through 200 innings in a year. You know, obviously, that's more like a big league workload, but guys routinely throw 140 to 175 innings. So it takes a lot to withstand that. So I guess my point here for what do people do wrong when they're injured? There are some things that people do wrong. Okay, so. But number one, people shouldn't feel this crushing guilt when they get injured. Like, oh, this is my fault. I should have done this. I should have done that. Like hindsight is part of the learning process. I mean, with young kids, I didn't have a work ethic until I was 18 years old. When I got my college scholarship or not my college offer, I didn't have a scholarship at first. I got it offered a couple thousand bucks when I was a junior, but I was a walk on in college. When I got that offer, that's sort of like when my switch flipped. And at that point, I had a work. I just developed a work ethic. But prior to that, in high school, I didn't do anything. I didn't do any any strengthening for my arm. I did a handful of pitching lessons. You know, I was taught by some great coaches when I was young, and I had a you know great high school coach um, and good summer ball coaches. So I had good influences, but I didn't go run on my own. I didn't do strength conditioning on my own. That stuff really wasn't a thing back then. You know, I certainly didn't stay at home doing rotator cuff care or, or elbow care. So. With all that stuff, you know, your natural ability is going to run out at some point as you start to stress your body and you you accumulate this workload from over time and you start to accumulate micro tears and your ligaments and all that stuff. And and so over the years, it was certain that I was eventually going to run into an injury. And so it's, again, that, that sort of 100% injury risk. And then as we did that, and so if we're looking at, you know, what did I possibly do wrong and all that and what do other people do wrong, you know, when I got to college, I threw a lot. So I threw 11 months out of 12 and that wasn't all competitive pitching. You know, I was competitively pitching in the spring, in the summer and in the fall. But after that, throughout the winter, I threw all winter because that was sort of what I, I worked on my mechanics and I developed my, my off-speed stuff. I learned, you know, I taught myself a change up and, and really developed in that winter break that just sort of five week period, uh, December into January. But you know, with all that stuff, I, I think if you look at the pitch smart guidelines that are out there, all these uh, these high level minds in baseball, all the best surgeons and PTs, and you know, obviously it's in conjunction with Major League Baseball, they have these guidelines out there, and and for the most part, I followed most of them, unbeknownst to me. Uh, you know, I I didn't competitively pitch, you know, a ton. I so I got my rest. You know, I rested at least a month, usually like six weeks, something like that, uh, and then I only threw about 11 months out of 12. And again, most of those weren't competitive innings. So probably competitively pitched eight months out of the year. Um, you know, I didn't, we had pitch counts in, in college. I didn't pitch when I was overly fatigued. I wasn't overusing high school because I wasn't that good because I had some sort of chronic arm problems. Um, you know, my innings load over the course year was not crazy. I was never really pitched without getting enough rest. I don't think I ever pitched in on consecutive days in college. Um, you know, excessive throwing when not pitching, that's a risk here on the, the pitch smart website that I'm, I'm peeking at, you know, I did throw a good amount, but most of it wasn't overly intense. Um, I was never doing like weighted ball programs, any of that kind of stuff. I've tinkered with them in the past. I've done some of those myself and I found, uh, I think a little bit of success with them, but I never used those to excess. Um, I never played for multiple teams. I was never injured, uh, besides my arm. So I never had like other injuries that I was compensating for. You know, I, I killed it in the weight room. I killed it with my strength and conditioning. Um, I killed it with my arm care. I was running all the time. So I did a lot of things to have a pretty resilient body, I think. Uh, the one thing I did, I, I threw a curveball from age 15, 16 on. 
and I threw probably 40% curveballs from, but again, I only probably threw 40 innings in high school. And, you know, the more I threw in, in college, the less I relied on my curveball. I relied on it most as a freshman when I didn't have a changeup. So um, with all that stuff, you know, most of the risk factors that were heavy, you know, didn't necessarily apply to me. And it's one of those situations where we just need to look at not what we, we've done in the past, but what we're going to do going forward. So with any injury, we need to look into our mechanics if we can. So you got to find someone who's qualified, who understands the biomechanics of it. And that's, I think, harder now than ever because everyone seems to claim to be an expert. And there's a lot of groupthink out there on the internet where one faction of of pitching coach gurus think it's this way another faction thinks it's that way and most of them are interpreting you know research in whatever is way they see fit or there's a lot of homebrewed research out there right now which is not peer-reviewed which is not going through academic standards and that's extremely dangerous because people are saying oh look at this research i did you know it's showing this well you know would you accept that sort of homebrewed research if you're giving your son or daughter a you know a pill you know, oh, the doctor did his own research and no one looked at it. He just did it himself, but he says it's good. Like what he says, it's safe. Like, would you do, would you go through that? No. Um, you know, there's academic standards for research for a reason to protect people from false information and, and, and just bad methodology. So there's a lot of that out there on the internet. There's a lot of monkey see monkey do where maybe kids are seeing a 25 year old guy who's got not much to lose anymore throwing, you know, weighted balls as hard as he can into a net from a run or from the mound or whatever. And they say, oh, that looks good. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that program. And that's going to work for me. Well, you're not that 25 year old guy and you don't know what he's been doing beyond that. You might be well prepared for that, but you might not. So there's a lot of things out there now, I think more than ever, where people can, you know, suffer these missteps and set themselves up for injury. And we see it a bunch. Um, But at the same time, it's not necessary, I don't think, to blame yourself uh, if you just come down with an injury. You know, there's, a gr- there's growth plates, there's growing, there's so many other variables, other sports. I mean, for example, we have a lot of softball players who play volleyball. And so they have two sports where they're overhead. So they're volleyball, they're hitting, they're spiking volleyballs all the time, puts a lot of stress on their shoulders, it's a different motion from throwing. And then they throw the softball a bunch of practice. So when those two sports overlap, tons of those girls have shoulder problems. And, you know, we get them on a more rigorous shoulder program and usually it, it, and they hopefully rest a little bit and back off one or the other and then it'll abate. But at the same time, there's just lots of different things going on where it's tough to pinpoint what might be causing problems. And, you know, we have to look at it. We have to read into it. But at the same time, I don't think blaming um, everyone for their injuries and this idea that all injuries are preventable. Therefore, if you're injured, you did something wrong. That's just totally false. So let's go into strength and conditioning programs. So this is, uh, it's cause for contention here, especially with baseball pitchers, because again, there's, if you look around the internet, especially on social media, you'll see pitchers wanting to treat themselves like every other, I think, weightlifter on the planet. And that's great. So for a long time, pitchers were coddled. You know, it's like, oh, heavy lifting is not good for pitchers, yada, 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 old sort of mythology, I guess. But now it's almost going the opposite direction where lift heavy, bro. And it's like, you know, pitchers can lift heavy. And you see these kids deadlifting 500 pounds and with crappy form a lot of times because they're straining so hard just to lift more weight 
and their focus is solely on just like being this awesome pitcher who lifts heavy guy. Whereas when you play long enough and you start to do a bunch of that stuff, you start to realize that, hey, this is my money maker. Do I need 500 pounds held in it today? Do I need to have that much strain flowing through my arm? Do I really need to be bench pressing that much? Do I really need to be dumbbell bench pressing 95s? Is that going to make me a better pitcher? Now for young kids and just young athletes in general, yes, to a point. And then you hit this point where your performance as a pitcher is not going to keep increasing because of your deadlift. So for example, for me, I always had set points. So I got pretty darn strong as a sophomore in college. And then I continued to get a little bit stronger. And then I hit another spike in strength when I got out of college, when I could start to do my own programs and I wasn't running as much. And there were just a lot of other factors that started to allow me to get a little bit more strong. So, but even at that point, I could deadlift 450. I could squat. Um, my best squat was 425. Uh, I never really bench pressed, but you know, I could do weighted chin-ups with 100 pounds strapped to me. I could do one, I think, chin-up with 100 pounds added. Um, so in, in all metrics by you know just general weightlifting standards, I was like a pretty strong guy. By powerlifting standards, I was weak, whatever. I wasn't a powerlifter. But compared to the general population and to most other athlete groups in general, I was a strong division one athlete and then a strong pro athlete. So, but at that point, you know, I was, I'd built my body to the point where I was strong enough to pitch. I had, I think tapped out all the velocity gains that I would get from strength training and I was thick enough. I was flexible enough. I was big enough and strong enough and explosive enough. I wasn't going to get any benefit from taking my deadlift from 450 to 500. I wasn't going to get any benefit from taking my, my chin up max from hundred pounds to 125 pounds. You know, if I added more weight on the, you know, I could do a hundred pushups in two and a half minutes. I wasn't going to get stronger by increasing that number. I wasn't going to get stronger by increasing my bench press, like all those things. I was, I just like pretty much gotten there. I'd built the body that I needed to build to do what I needed to do on the field. And so at that point there were just little things like how can I get maybe a little more explosive or how can I get maybe a little more flexible in this area or that area or it was more just like auditing and seeing where I had little holes left over that maybe I was leaking some power. I could just get a little bit better, but my, my like strength bucket was pretty much filled. It was pretty much overflowing. And so there's, you know, pitchers should lift heavy until they get to a point. And then at that point they're just wasting their time trying to get, they're basically going to get almost nothing out of it as they get just a, a fraction stronger on some of these big lifts and their injury risk goes up. So you say, okay, your deadlifts at 450 and you really want to get to 500 because you're a cool pitcher that lifts heavy. Well, um, for that extra 50 pounds, your injury risk probably goes up a lot because if you tweak anything in your forearm, you're putting a ton of weight through your elbow, through your shoulder joint, through all those. Um, though again, those are the things that make you money on the field. So you're putting all those at risk for another 50 pounds on your deadlift that may or may not help you at all. So to me, the risk reward is just simply not there. Because there is a point with all those people. If you watch powerlifters, they tear their forearms, they pop ligaments, they mess up their shoulders, and they there's a lot of injury risk in powerlifting. And then it seems like pitchers a lot of times start to blur that line where I want to lift heavy, I want to continue to be that cool guy who, you know, is the strongest pitcher anyone ever knew, where you don't get paid to be a strong pitcher, you get paid to be an effective pitcher. So strength training is great and kids should lift heavy until they get to the certain point. And then it's about, all right, this bucket's filled. Let's start to fill your other buckets. Maybe you're not strength, you know, maybe you're not flexible enough. Maybe you could be a little more explosive. Maybe you could do a little bit of this or a little more of that. And for me, 
I always threw harder when I was a little bit leaner. So I would stop lifting when the season started, when spring training hit. I wouldn't stop, but I would greatly reduce my volume because A, it made my arm feel better. And B, as I started to lose a little bit of weight in my chest and my arms, I started to throw a little bit harder. So it wasn't always the case where if I'm maxed out in size and strength that I was at my best because I wasn't. I was at my best when I got there and then I let a little bit of it trickle off because I'm a guy who I put on weight quickly with my forearms, my biceps, my chest, and my back. I get really thick in those areas. And when I have too big of a chest and too big of arms, I just don't move as well. I just don't move as well. I don't whip the baseball quite as well. And I always felt better about six to eight weeks into the season when I'd start to lean out a little bit in my chest and that was fine. It's almost like storing blubber for the winter kind of. That was kind of how I how I thought of it where I need to get my weight up and my strength up before the season because I know it's going to go down as the year progresses. So I just need to be in a position where I can afford to lose some of it and not become this weak, you know, flabby, addict shape kind of kind of guy by by August. So um, strength and conditioning is huge. Young players should do it. And for younger kids, you know, we're talking about the 8 to 13, 14 range. Arm care is strength and conditioning for most of those kids. Now, you know, in, in our academy, we do strength and conditioning. We do arm care in addition to it. But for the younger kids... And we're just going to move on here to the arm care section of this talk. But arm care is one of the most tedious things of all time. It's something I am just so glad I don't have to do it anymore. There was a period in time where I just would walk around and I would look at everyone's shoulders because I was so obsessed with my own posture and what my, my scapula were doing. And because I knew I had to be in really great shape with my shoulders to pitch as well as I wanted to. I wanted to squeeze every last little drop of velocity out of my body. And so I had to cover any little thing that I could cover. So for me, again, it was always like auditing, like what else do I need? All right, I've got a lot of this. What, what else can I, where can I shift my focus and my work ethic and uh, my training volume? So I did usually four days a week of a half an hour's worth of arm care every day, pretty or every week from age 18 and a half to 30. And I absolutely hated it from age 24 all the way up. It was just like, uh, I got to do this. Uh, I got to do this again. And because it's just, it, it's just tedious. I mean, there's no other way to, to describe it. And so with young kids, sure, we have to give them a little bit of that, but at the same time, in, at least in my academy, we're trying to build kids who are lifelong lifters, who have a passion for it, who enjoy it, who, and if they don't enjoy it, they just realize like, Hey, this is going to get me to my goals. And I'm happy to suck it up. And I kind of see my friends when I go to Warbird and I have a good time when I go there. I don't really like lifting, but I really like being good at my sport. And that's okay too. That was kind of what I was. I don't know that I ever loved lifting now that I look back on it because I'm incredibly burned out and I hate lifting more than anything in the world at this moment. <laughs> but um, back in the time or back in the day, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know that I ever really like loved it, but I liked being challenged and I liked seeing the results. Because for me, there was a really strong, pretty much a linear progression from the day that I stepped on college that the more work I put in, the harder I threw and the better I got on the mound. So uh, for me, I just wanted the next step of results and I was perfectly happy to put in the work to get it. But did I ever actually like enjoy weightlifting? I'm not not sure. I don't know that I hated it, but I don't know that I like loved it for the way that a lot of people go to the gym on a daily basis and they get like their hour of Zen, they get away from their, their troubles and their work and they just get to focus on that. I don't know that I've ever felt that way. 
and I don't know that I ever will, but at the same time, we want kids to hopefully feel like, feel that way if we, if we can, we can help it. So for younger, younger kids, number one, they ha- they'd have less body control, obviously. And again, I'm talking about like the eight to 14 range. So a lot of these arm care exercises are inappropriate for them because they're going to speed through them because their mind is going to wander. They're going to go too fast. They're not going to focus on the little details. And, and to be honest, arm care is, is all about attention to detail and taking your time, going through the reps, doing them right, going slow. So you hit the little muscles that we're targeting. And that's just not, that's just not the way for a, an 11 year old. So for us, most of, most of that is bigger lifts like rows and TRX rows and chin-ups and, and learning how to do a push-up properly and lots of lower body stuff and core work and then just some general sort of rotator cuff work like pull-aparts and no monies, which is another band exercise, more things that are kind of closed chain than open chain where both hands are connected rather than, than unilateral. And those things tend to work better when they're young. And we just tend to try to give them like a big dose of simple stuff and hopefully that's going to cover what they need at their age because you know you don't see that many eight to 14 year olds getting hurt they just usually are just a little weak where they just don't handle the demands of baseball that well and so if you can give them a good strength conditioning program with some amount of arm care mixed in and it doesn't have to be like i just i just really can't recommend that kids are going home and doing 30 minutes of of rotator cuff work at age 12, 13, I just like, I, I can see what they're going to do. They're going to quit baseball on their 18 because it's been such a job for them for so long. So the reality is that unless they're injured, that's just not, I don't think reality. And I don't think that's the right prescription for them. I think if they come into the weight room three days a week, something like that, two or three days a week, and they get a quality workout in by someone who knows what they're doing and it's whole body and there's some targeting to their rotator cuff and to their elbow, you know, it's forearm, forearm strengthening. We do a ton of that with farmer's walks and, and other such things. If you just sort of do that, I think that covers pretty much all their bases while they're young. And then as they get older, they have to take that next step or if they get injured, they have to take that next step. So they have some elbow pain. All right, well, you have to do this at home now. All right, we have to give you 15 extra minutes every time you come in of this now. And then it cures it and they start to figure out the, you know, the cause and effect of it all. But, you know, we can't say, hey, 12 year old, you're going to have shoulder pain in four years if you don't do all this stuff religiously at home. It's just not going to, it's just not going to fly. So we try to let them be kids. I, I firmly believe in finding a balance between young players enjoying what they're doing and not making it a job, keeping it a game as long as they can, because, you know, I sucked it up for a long time and there's players who played way longer than I did. You know, and I, I shouldn't complain compared to some of those guys, but everyone has the same experience where after a while you have to do lots of things just to stay on the field and they're not fun. And those things are going to accumulate the older you get. So if we're trying to have a little more fun when we're young, we need to capitalize on it. And so the last thing I want to talk about are mechanics. So with mechanics, there's again, more, excellent information out there than ever, more confusing information out there than ever, more wrong information out there than ever, and more information that we think is right at the moment that we're going to be, that we're going to find is, was actually wrong the whole time. Uh, there's that information there's too. There's, there's a lot of info on the internet. There's a lot of trendy things that are going on right now that will fall out of favor sooner than later because people are going to start to realize that, oh, a lot of people are getting injured doing this. Seemed like a really good idea. Really smart guy talked about it in this way. 
but it looks like it's been proven wrong. So there's a ton for parents to wade through at the moment. But for right now, I think the big things for any young player, and as you get older, you just have to find more targeted coaching and and figure out a little bit more what's right for you. But for younger players between, again, like 8 and 16 maybe, pitching mechanics, they're relatively simple. They're not this complex, crazy animal. I mean, it is a complex, whole-body, unique movement. But at the same time, it can be summed up relatively simply i explain it to eight-year-olds and and parents that have never played baseball i do that every single day as we assess mechanics uh and the big checkpoints they're not that hard to figure out and many of the drills they're not that hard to explain and teach they're just it's just a matter of getting in the right place with the right person and figuring out what do we need to do to hopefully mitigate some of the injury risk so with pitching one of the big things to understand is that there's a lot of leverages and there's a lot of physics so when for example the stride foot contacts the ground so pitcher lifts his leg his leg starts to come down he starts to stride towards the plate and if he's a righty his left foot contacts the mound you know that's where he that's where the stride phase ends his stride foot hits the ground in that position you usually see a pitcher's shoulders are level you see their front arm is maybe bent a little bit or straight it could be either one i prefer it straight you see like a guy like kenley jansen has a really long straight front arm i think that's the best way to do it uh, but you see other guys like jake arietta they have a bent arm when they're their stride foot contacts there's a million ways to do it but the, the the big checkpoint at that point is level shoulders okay so that means they have to keep their weight in their back hip longer so they can resist the downhill angle of the mount again when they land there's a couple things that we need to see so they're probably going to land on their heel because if they do if they have their weight back the way they're supposed to they're almost always going to land on their heel if their weight's forward they're almost always going to land on their toe we want their weight back and when they land their hips need to still be mostly sideways so their chest their shirt logo is facing the third base you know the third baseman their right toe right knee their hip bones still facing mostly the third baseman and again i'm not going to go into absolutes because there's little differences so i don't need someone saying oh like the knee is not exactly sideways which maybe it's not uh, but for the most part those joints are mostly sideways at that point and then from there you know the glove arm sort of tucks down and the word tuck i think is often misunderstood but i use the word tuck all the time in reality the glove doesn't pull backwards the body the chest moves towards the glove as the arm sort of folds down by the side but the word tuck and i do a drill called a punch where kids will reach out with their glove arm and they'll yank their elbow in and they'll punch forward with their right arm and they'll pivot on their back foot and it just helps them connect their backside to their front side it helps them understand how their front side influences their backside and it shows them what the arm action of their glove arm is which is basically to fold down kind of with their palm up and help turn their hips all the way so they can deliver their back hip and their arm towards the plate. So with all that stuff, there's again, there's timing and there's leverages. So when that stride foot contacts, the arm is typically going to be at 90 degrees or a little bit less, not a significant, less, uh, not a significant amount less because that starts to increase shoulder strain as well. That's been proven in research by the ASMI. Again, a lot of people out there are not teaching it that way. They're teaching it with this crazy amount of elbow flexion, the ball held very closely to the ear. And I can tell you from personal experience, that was a, a, a challenge 
of mine trying to relieve my elbow pain or my shoulder pain in my last season. I, uh, I worked with another pitching coach out of California and we talked about some of the flaws that I had because I was just trying to save my career at that point and me being a little bit too close, keeping the ball too close to my head as I started to accelerate and rotate my trunk. That was one of the things that was lighting my arm up. And as I got more to 90 degrees in my elbow, that pain went away like immediately. So just because that's my experience doesn't mean that's everyone's experience. And again, everyone's different. But for me, it was just a little bit of a, uh, it, it confirmed what some of the research is showing because whatever that does when your elbow is excessively flexed, it puts more strain on your arm, on your shoulder, your bicep tendon, all that stuff. It was clearly happening in me. And so I'm not that much different than most humans. Um, obviously it's a little bit different, but you know, I got to experience a little bit of that firsthand. So when I kept it at 90 degrees, when I didn't let my form stay too close to my head, as I started to, to rotate into my delivery, my arm felt significantly better. And I actually threw a tick harder with less effort. So it was, it was interesting to be, and that was one of the things I've learned throughout the years is as I've had elbow pain, I've learned what makes my elbow hurt and what doesn't. And especially during the rebuild process for both surgeries, I could feel when my elbow moved a certain way or this way, I'd have more elbow pain or less pain. And if I just went on that, I could sort of like self-diagnose good mechanics from bad based on, all right, I'm at month eight of my rehab. When my elbow sort of flies out this way, it hurts. And when it stays this way, it doesn't. I'm going to go ahead and stay that way. You know, my velocity stays the same, but this one hurts and that one doesn't. So there's, it's an easy and it's a fascinating thing to witness when you're sort of your own experiment. And again, that was me. That's not to say that's everyone's experience, but you know, we're all humans and these leverages are important. So what I mean by leverage is that say you straightened your arm and you had a pie on it and you're going to throw that pie. There's only one real good way you could do it. Um, and that's a slow movement because it's a long lever arm. You're having to, your shoulder has to accelerate this, you know, three foot long arm, that three foot long lever. And so the easy way to kind of sum that up is just when you have longer levers, just like swinging a longer bat, it takes more energy to rotate it. So when your elbow is less flexed, when your arm starts to accelerate, it's going to put more stress through your elbow ligament than if it's less stressed, but the, there's a tipping point. So well, that 90 degree angle is about the butter zone where you have the, the right amount of stress without causing more or less pain and without decreasing or increasing velocity any further. So if you watch a guy like Zach Greinke, his elbow is usually at 90 degrees as his stride foot contacts and then he's about to rotate towards the plate and his elbow stays mostly at 90 throughout that delivery. So if you look at most pitchers, they're there plus or minus a little bit. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. There's guys that pitch a little bit differently with, with good success. Um, but with all these things, we're looking for stuff like that to try to figure out, is he at potential risk in the future or is he ever going to be able to throw hard enough to be a good pitcher in the future? So can we make some of these mechanical tweaks and not only probably put less stress through his arm, but also hopefully, uh, prevent some injuries in the future and hopefully increases velocity a little bit. So that stuff's important. And when that stride foot hits, so we're talking about the elbow at the angle, we're also have an elbow. So if you look back at your hand as the pitcher, there's a clock there, your arm's supposed to be around 10 or 11 o'clock. So you're not straight up and down holding the ball. 
when you're striving for contacts. Your arm's a little bit lower than that. So it's like if you're a righty, it'd be at 11 or 10 o'clock on the clock face. And that timing right there is where you get the best balance between arm stress and velocity. So almost all pitchers, when their stride foot hits, their arm is at like, like that 10 or 11 o'clock range. Very few are at 12 o'clock because they won't throw hard enough. Their arm won't lay back fast enough. And very few are at 9 o'clock or below because it puts the arm into sort of catch-up mode. And then you put more stress through your shoulder and elbow. So those are important things. That's kind of like the timing aspect. And there's been a lot of people that have talked about timing in the past. And with a lot of, I think, just conjecture. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not making this stuff up. I just sort of follow the ASMI's research. I don't follow the, the sort of hogwash research that's out there on the Internet. Because who knows what methodology some of these guys are using. Um, there's great new tools like the Modus Sleeve that I'm going to talk about more in part two that you can do your sort of own research at home. It will show you the arm stress that flows through your elbow. However, we just need to be careful with those numbers. We need to make sure it's personalized to you. So if you throw one time and you see your elbow stress number is at a 60, does that mean that's your number? I don't know. Let's throw with it for a couple months and see what your consistent baseline looks like. Then let's change, let's, let's tweak with your mechanics a little bit. See if we can get that number to go lower or say your workload gets high or something changed in the season that we're not aware of. Now we can look at that number. Okay. Now it's at 70 or it's at 75. Like what's happened? What, where do we go wrong? Like what's changed, what's caused this increase in stress? So it's not just velocity. You know, Glenn Fleissig did a study, Dr. Fleissig out of uh, ASMI, he did a study they presented at Sabre seminar showing that more velocity isn't always an increased uh, or doesn't always increase stress through the arm. So there are a lot of different pitchers that they had in their study. And some pitchers, as they threw 80, then 85, then their max, you know, usually in the 90s, some of them, their elbow stress went up accordingly. For others, it didn't. So they'd throw the same amount of elbow stress at 85 that they would with at 90 or 92. It just depends on the person and their mechanics. But we want to figure out what their baseline is and what we can do to just sort of maximize who they are. So there's not that many absolutes, but you know, we, they have a pretty good idea through biomechanical research and all that stuff. And I don't profess to be a biomechanics expert. I am not a researcher. I'm not the guy who's going to quote research studies at you. I'm not going to quote, you know, joint torque numbers. That's just not what I'm passionate about, but I have a good working knowledge of all that stuff. I read it, I take it and I simplify it for others because I'm not I'm not going to go and blabber on with numbers to parents that don't care, to kids that don't care, um, and I don't really care. We just need to know what do we do, not what are all the minutiae um, that I need to have in my brain if I want to look smart to another smart person. I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with getting the right information to people um, so they can understand it and buy in. You know, that's, that's my big thing because we also have like a limited memory bank. And for me, I do not remember who wrote which study. I will not be able to quote you, you know, this and that. And the other thing doesn't mean I haven't read it. It just means that I read it and I took what I wanted from it, which was simple, actionable stuff. And then I'm going to give it to a nine-year-old or I'm going to give it to a 14-year-old or to a parent who has no baseball background, who doesn't want to delve into the research. They just want to know what does their kid need to be healthy, to do well, to throw harder, to get to their goals. So... That stuff's important. So I'm going to talk more about mechanics um, 
and pitching style in part two of this sort of, again, kind of layman's guide to arm injuries. Uh, but I just want to touch on a little bit today. And so next week we're going to talk about pitching style. So that kind of goes into what you throw and how often you throw it. So your how often you throw your breaking ball, your slider, uh, pitch counts, overuse, tournament pitching, all that sort of stuff. Some of the new technology, which I mentioned, like the Modusly, which I think is great. Um, radar guns. I'm going to touch on weighted balls a little bit, which I don't think are the devil. I just think, um, just real quick, I think it's just the way they're done. Um, and I think it's like what the goal of the player is. And I think we're losing track a little bit on how um, baseball requires baseball players, not just kids that throw a ball towards another human being. So um, I think baseball, some of the art of it is being lost. And I don't believe that we have such a limited bandwidth where we can't do both. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But anyway, glad you uh, tuned in today. And we'll catch you next week on episode 25 of Dear Baseball Gods.